Good evening. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Will be a bit of a uh, walk down memory lane for some of you who uh, misspent your youth tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But we're going to the source. We're going to the real version and the one that God inspired. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and uh, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 3 and we'll read just from verse 1 to 8 to start with but we'll get a little bit further than that tonight. Verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. There you go. I think someone's trying to tell me something. Okay, Okay, good. Let's start again. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time to of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you tonight, Lord. Uh, We know that we are people who need the Word of God, and so tonight we look forward, Lord, to the message that you have for us. We pray that you would help us to see what your Word says and help us to live the things that we find, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably uh, come across this passage somewhere before, if not in your own Um, personal Bible readings. You may have come across it um, at a memorial service, at a funeral, um, or perhaps you've come across it in popular folk music or even uh, in popular music. Uh, This passage is quite a well-known passage. Uh, It's often cited by people to speak of the ebb and flow of life, of the routines, the seasons that we all drift through in life and uh, oftentimes people use this passage uh, as a scriptural reading even at uh, humanistic or unsaved funerals people quote this passage uh, and they they're often quoting this passage so that death becomes simply a normal phase of life Uh, there is a time to be born and a time to die it's natural for all people and so perhaps that's a little bit comforting This passage has been appreciated by poets uh, and songwriters, even non-Christian ones, uh, for its beauty as a passage, uh, for the balance that we find here between uh, two extremes in each case, uh, and for the broadness of its scope. It speaks about a lot of different things from birth to death and everything in between. Uh, It's quite a comprehensive passage. But Solomon's point is precisely the opposite of what people use this this passage to say. 
Solomon speaks to the fact that the variations in life are not rhythmical. The variations in life bring frustration and not beauty. People don't just drift through life saying, yes, this is a time of being sick. And soon there'll come a time of being well again, equally proportionate to that time of being sick. How well balanced is this wonderful life? No, that's not what Solomon's saying at all. He's saying the opposite. He's saying all of these things are thrust upon us. And let me show you that he's not in some Zen state when he writes Ecclesiastes chapter 3, because verse 9 says, What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboureth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. What profit is there from all of this variation, from all these different parts of life? What profit when we get to the end of it? The variations of life are a toil. They're a hard work, Solomon says, and they're thrust upon us. Tonight, I just want to have a look at three points. Firstly, I want us to see that we are exercised in variation. Verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Solomon starts by stating a fact. In the human experience, there are a lot of different times. There are a lot of different seasons. It's not all the same, even though every life is different. Not just my life is one thing and your life is something else. But within our own lives, we experience the whole plethora of these things. Life is varied and each life varies. Someone has said of this passage, every matter has a time suited to it. But one thing we have to realize about this passage is that it is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. So Solomon is telling us the things that happen in life. He's not telling us things that we are to do in life. He's not saying make a time to love and a time to hate. Make a time to be born and a time to kill. And that's the proof in verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. How did you choose the time to be born? Well, you didn't, did you? <laughs> it was a time that was thrust upon you. How do you choose the time to die? Well, you don't get to, not legally at least anyway. It comes upon you. And that's what this passage is all about. These times of life just come through us. We have to experience them. He's not recommending these things. He's simply recognizing their presence in each of our lives. Now, if we look at the, uh, the Hebrew construction of this passage from verses um, 2 through to 8, time, time to, a time to, a time to, a time to. The punctuation in the Hebrew comes after each verse. And as you'll notice, there are two comparisons in each verse, four things. So for instance, in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, punctuation. Okay, so there's four things and then punctuation. So in our English versions, the punctuation would come at the end of each verse. And that's probably why they're grouped together that way. Now that suggests to us that there are two contrasts in each verse and perhaps these contrasts in each verse are related one to another. We won't push that because it's not stated for us but the punctuation does suggest that there may be a relation between um, the first two and then the second two and then the third two and so forth. 
So as we go through, we'll just go through quickly these comparisons. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them because they're fairly, fairly self-evident. Verse 2, we have the life-death situation. A time to kill and a time to heal. Sorry, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. So we've got the birth-death situation, first of all, in human animal life and then in plant life. But we've got the same cycle in both instances. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. We've got a destruction remedy cycle, a destruction fixing cycle, first in the instance of life, a time to kill and a time to heal, and then in the instance of buildings or um, tasks, a time to break down and a time to build up. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We can see that there are relations between these four things, aren't there? This is an emotional verse. It's talking about the happy, sad equilibrium. Uh, the weep and the laugh are things that we do personally. Um, the mourning and the dancing are the things that we would do publicly. They're public displays of these things, even though the first two may be in some instances as well. Now, the one that might need a little bit more explanation is verse 5 a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together now we might think well why did you mention that one <laughs> it's just strange isn't it a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together well if the um the verse grouping and the verse relationship idea holds up then perhaps the second thing in that verse might give us a little bit more of an insight into what he's speaking about where he says a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Perhaps this is speaking about relationships. Second Kings chapter 3. Let's have a look over there for an instance that may be relevant to our discussion. Second Kings chapter 3. <clears throat> you won't hear this phrase regularly from this pulpit, but just forget about the context here. <laughs> We're just going to read these verses and see what's being referred to. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says, And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them, but they went, before, they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their country. 2 Kings 3, 25, And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only Kirhaseth left they stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. And so perhaps um, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 5, um, it, it's talking about receiving or opposing people. The army in this case, they were cursing a people or making their lives hard by grabbing a whole lot of stones and casting it into their fields. The fields that they wanted to use for agriculture, full of stones, would have been quite difficult to plough and to use for any other reason. There's another reference to that in another part of the scriptures. Just know it's there. Um, and so this perhaps is what Solomon could be referring to. The second part of that verse, uh, he says in verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And so uh, this verse could be speaking about a time to be friendly and a time to be unfriendly or a time to not show friendliness. Um, perhaps that's what he's getting at. Verse 7. Sorry, verse 6, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep 
and a time to cast away. We can see this is relating to possessions. Perhaps the first is the passive, where uh, we get things and we have things taken away from us. And then the second bit, the active, we get things ourselves and we throw things away. Verse 7, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. You might think, well, this might be totally unrelated and quite possibly it could be unrelated. But it also does apply to the area of uh, mourning. If you look at that verse, a time to rend, to tear the garments, a time to sow or to get over things, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. It can be talking about a time of crisis. And then verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. It's obvious the private and public expression of love. Now, Longman, one of the commentators on this passage, says this, it is important to emphasize that the poem does not advocate these emotions, states or actions, but simply describes them as part of the full spectrum of human experience and that's what I mentioned to you at the start. Solomon's not necessarily advocating doing any of these things although there may be an argument for each of these things in their time but that's not what he's doing here. What he's trying to get across to us is that there is a constant changing of gears in life. Uh, there is a constant change. At, at one time we might be absolutely joyful and at another time, we might be brought to our knees in grief. Both of these things are a part of the human experience. And there seems to be what Solomon says, no lasting profit in any of these things by themselves. He says in verses 9 and 10, What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. What profit is there from going through all of these even opposing seasons of life. One after another, these things come. But sometimes they don't even wait their turn, do they? Sometimes it's one on top of another, these things come. And sometimes you don't get a bit of love after you've received a season of hate. <laughs> sometimes it's three hates and one love and back to two hates again. Uh, there's no beautiful rhythm in these things in our lives. And if you look at your life objectively, I'm sure you'll be able to express that and you'll be able to see that for yourself. It reminded me when I was thinking about um, how people sometimes look for these beautiful rhythms of life and how one waits its turn for the next one to finish. A friend of mine or a girl that I knew when I was going to school, she was getting married and on the day that she was getting married, she was getting her makeup done and the news came in that her fiance had been killed in a motorbike accident. A time of love. It was the day of a wedding and the very day, time of death, one on top of another, didn't wait their turn. And you would be able to state the same thing, experiences in other people's lives where they've been through seasons of layer upon layer of hardship. And when one person's going through layer upon layer of hardship, you look across the gulf and there's another person who just seems to be walking and every step, things are just turning to gold for them. And you just can't figure out why is, why is all of the good things on that side and you can't even just share a little bit over onto this side. How come life works this way? We must say there is a rhythm to the poem, but there is not a rhythm to life. 
And there is even an imbalance of proportion of time for each of them. And if we don't take time to stop and to reflect purposely as people, even not just as Christians, but as people, we get carried away with the next episode before we acknowledge the one that's gone before. Sometimes life gets really busy. don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and it gets so busy that you stop appreciating the things that you've been through. And sometimes you might flick through a photo album or uh, you might talk to a friend you haven't seen in a long time and all of a sudden you remember a whole season of your life that you've just totally forgotten. These are the ways that we go through life and like Solomon said, what profit is there in it? <laughs> if there was that season that was so striking to me at the time and then all of a sudden, years later, I remember that I'd, for I remember that I'd forgotten it, what profit is there even in that time? didn't remember it what is the profit of it all so we are exercised in variation often without break but second of all let's move on to verse 11 there is an enigma of the variation verse 11 he hath made everything beautiful in his time also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. When I was studying through this verse, I came to the conclusion that we could summarize it as hope quickly snuffed out. Hope quickly snuffed out. Read it at the start. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. You start to see the sun come out after Solomon's drudgery of saying how we're going through all these difficult things. But he only brings the sun out to show that we don't really get to understand the sun at all. <laughs> God has made everything beautiful, he says. And this could be a relation to the, a reference to the original creation. God made everything beautiful originally. But I think more appropriately, what Solomon's speaking about here is that God's timing is beautiful. He hath made everything beautiful in his time, things that aren't ordinarily beautiful. By God's use of timing, he can make beautiful. God can take ugly things and make them beautiful. So, is God the author of death? No, he's not. God is the author of good things. So, death, does that mean that God doesn't use death? No, God uses death all the time. God can make death beautiful in his time with God's perfect orchestration he can bring together things that are terrible and use them for good Romans chapter 8 verses 28 and 29 very well-known verses in the New Testament they say and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God makes all things beautiful in our life. If we are saved, if we are obedient to him, that's the way that we show that we love him. That's the promise there of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. God makes all things beautiful in our life. Why? By helping us to enjoy them. No, how do you enjoy hatred? How do you enjoy death? You don't. God makes all things beautiful in our life by using them to conform us to the image of his son. Can God use death to do that? Yes, he can. 
Can God use the hatred of another person to conform you to be more like Jesus Christ? He regularly does. God can make all things beautiful in his time or with his timing. And so God composes a beautiful work through the perfect timing of all of those variations of life. But if we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's not such good news. (laughs) Solomon says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. That phrase here, set the world in their heart, the reference to the world there is not just a reference to the creation, but to everything. The idea is God has set the whole world, everything that we can think of, all existence, forever, eternity, all of those things. He has set that in our hearts. And what happens is when God sets the thinking about all of those things and how all of those things work together in our hearts, it frustrates us. Because we can't figure out how all of these things work together. We're mindful of eternity. We're mindful of what's the purpose of my life. We're mindful of why is this person struggling so much? Why are children in these countries dying at such young ages? We're thinking about the whole world. He's set the world in our hearts so that we're mindful of all of these things. And as we try and figure all of this out, it's exactly what Solomon says. No man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. This is the frustration of the human insight. We have the capacity to think about these things, but we'll never understand them. We'll never get them. Sometimes we might think we do. I know why God's doing this in my life, but you know, that's only our best guess, isn't it? We don't know for sure, do we? We ponder the works of God regularly. We ponder the works of the heathen. We ponder the works of everything in this world without really understanding them properly or ever figuring out where they fit into the jigsaw puzzle of life. And so God has put a quest for answers, but he's withheld most of the answers that we've got, that we need. Why is there suffering in my life now, Lord? doesn't tell us. Why is there not birth coming in our family now? No answer. Why do I have to keep weeping and weeping and weeping, Lord? We want to understand all of these things, but we can't. We've got the desire to know these things, but we can't. And brethren, the sooner we accept that, the happier our life is going to be. The sooner we stop trying to figure out everything in life, the happier our life can become. We have to let go. Now a question, a theological question, is God cruel to fit us for a frustrating quest? <laughs> is God cruel to make those, give us those thoughts in our minds that we perhaps can never find the answers to? I was reading through one book and I came across some quotes by C.S. Lewis. I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis says, but he is a wonderful thinker when it comes to some forms of apologetics. I want to quote this part from the book. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's just said so well. 
Charles Riken in his book says this, no one has ever explained the implications of our longing for eternity or our longing for understanding better than C.S. Lewis, who said, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. He goes on to say, The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. Isn't that lovely? A longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. It's not here. This world doesn't deserve to be the author of all the beauty. Elsewhere, he describes this longing as, and I quote, the scent of a flower we have not yet found. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever have a hunger for justice and for wisdom and for understanding what's going on in your life and you just can't figure it out? It's like the scent of a flower that you haven't found yet. <laughs> and the answer to our longing is not going to be a full explanation of all of the circumstances of our life. Number one, we're not going to get it. But number two, we don't need it. There's a better explanation. The answer to our longing is a person that we can trust. That's the answer to our longing. The answer to all of those questions is finding a person that we can place our trust in. Because once we trust God, then we know that there are answers even though we don't have the answers. Once I know what God is like, once I know that God has the answers and once I see the way that God operates and it proves to me that God has the answers, then I know that that God's got the answers and I can trust that God to have the answers even if I can't appreciate them all in my mind. That's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is saying, I can trust God to have all the answers and he doesn't have to give them all to me. That makes him God and me not God. Without faith in that God, life is a massive frustration. People think that they will find the answers to all these questions and yet they won't. They might be able to try and construct some sort of abstract reason for all the things that they're going through, and yet the maths don't really add up properly without God. God is the answer to our longing for an impossible riddle. It's God. And so because all of life is such a frustration... And it's hard to figure out lasting meaning from it. Solomon resorts back to something that he's recommended to us before in verses 12 and 13. He recommends the enjoyment of simple pleasures rather than seeking after unobtainable knowledge and the answers that most people never really find out. Verses 12 and 13, I know that there is no good in them, that is in people, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Verse 12, do good. Verse 13, enjoy what you're being given. 
these are two responsibilities of a creation to its creator. It's saying, I don't have all of the answers, but what I can do is do right and enjoy whatever God gives me. That's submission, isn't it? That's recognizing that God has all of the answers and we don't. And we're willing to place ourselves under the creator. But thankfully, Solomon finishes up in a better place. <laughs> and that's with the engineer of variation. Verses 14 and 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Now, I don't think Solomon comes to a place of calm rejoicing in God's plan here. I think it's a, um, a reluctant acceptance that he comes to here. I think that he's still struggling with this. It's a restless resignation. God's universal plan can't be changed. Solomon realizes that. What God is doing, he will do. <laughs> and if he's decided to do it, then no one can take away or add to it. That's what God's going to do. And similarly, God's plan for personal growth in our life is God's plan for growth in our life. We can either cooperate with it and receive all of the benefits that come with that, or we can strive against it and we won't change God's plan that he had for our lives, but we won't receive the blessing of God's plan that he had for our lives. What God does, he has planned already. God's plan, unlike those things that we read about in verses 2 to 8, are not, God's plan is not balanced with something else. A time for God to have his way and a time to Satan to have his way. No, it's not like that. Whatever God does, it will be done. It doesn't compete with anything else. God's plan is not subject to balance with other factors. He works through all things for our good, whether we enjoy those things or not. And sometimes we don't. <laughs> What God does in all things and the way that God can work through all things should cause us to fear. Just take a moment to contemplate the size of the consciousness that has all of our plans in his mind at the same time and the power that can bring them all to pass at the same time without impinging upon free will. My brain's popping, I don't know about yours. That's a big mind, an incredible intelligence. And that God can do it despite sinners is amazing. Verse 15, he says, That which hath been is now, so the past is the same as the present. And that which is to be, the future, hath already been. The future is the same as the past. And God requireth that which is past. It's the same as it has always been, Solomon says. And it's the same as it's always going to be. This is the way the world has always been and it will always will be. There are confusing and tiring cycles of life. And although we can't keep up with it, and we can't keep up with it, although we can't keep up with it, God is keeping a logbook. It says at the end there, and God requireth that which is past. Everything that has happened, God will require. God will bring it back. And God will make it good. 
everything. You see, the way that we navigate the varied of seasons of life counts. We might say, well, it's so hard. There's, there's all of this life and death and birth and killing and happiness and sadness and getting and losing. It's just so confusing and it's so busy and it seems so unfair. What does it all matter? Let me just do whatever I want. No, God will require everything that is past. Everything that you go through will come back before the eyes of God. And even though you might not even remember it now, God will go through it. And he'll make sure that everything is rightly remembered and rightly rewarded. And so if we put all of this passage together, what Solomon is telling us, God's is a beautiful eternal but largely invisible work he's doing it it can't be uh, upset by other people god has a wonderful plan in mind but most of it is invisible to us he is weaving the great tapestry of meaning that we are longing for it made me think sometimes i uh, have to plait long hair and the bit above my hands looks pretty good. But the bit underneath my hands is pretty messy. So it, it looks great. It looks like it's really ordered above it when I do it right. Looks pretty good up the top. And at the point of plaiting is okay. But then when you get below it, there's all this hair tangled together because it's being weaved together, woven together. And it's like that with God working together at the parts of our lives. To us, what do we see? The mess. <laughs> we can't make sense of all that's going on, but if you look just above God's hands at all that he's brought us through, it's a beautiful picture. We don't get to see it all, but it is a everlasting and a wonderful work that God is doing. And the only way that we can get through this life with our sanity is faith. It's only by knowing that God is a God who is worth trusting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you, Lord. Um, and we do, in our honesty, Lord, acknowledge that we don't understand a lot of things that are happening. Uh, Lord, and we would probably choose things a different way, but I pray that you would help us, Lord, in the things that we have to go through. Uh, Lord, help us to accept your master plan and help us, Lord, to recognize that even though things don't look clear to us from our perspective, Lord, we trust that you have a wonderful plan and we pray that you would help us to rest in the God that you are, uh, regardless of what we're having to go through. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that uh, you have planned for us. We thank you that the thoughts that you have for us are for our good and we pray that you would bless and help us to trust, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.